Well, as we kind of come to the, the final chapter of the sermon that is this book of Hebrews, uh, we're met with what kind of seems at first glance like this kind of just random list of, of kind of instructions for godly living. And, and it, it kind of can feel a little bit at first glance very disjointed, disconnected, like these instructions are sort of coming out at us out of, out of nowhere at random. But as you, as you really take a closer look and you really kind of think about what is being said here, you, you see that that assessment couldn't be further from the truth of what's, what's actually happening. For what we have here is, is not a random list of rules to follow, uh, but the conclusion of a sermon. The conclusion of a sermon given very personally to a specific congregation of believers. A sermon given by a pastor who has personal knowledge uh, of the people to whom he is preaching to. And therefore, he offers some personalized instructions for how they are to apply the heart of his message into their own lives going forward. At the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we looked at last week, in verse 28, the preacher encourages his hearers. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in awe. In light of the hope that we have in Christ, knowing that, that Jesus is our sure and steady anchor for the soul, knowing that we have been brought uh, by Jesus into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, no matter what happens to us in this life, in light of all that, we are to live these lives filled with worship, just reflecting glory back to God. In uh, chapter 13 is sort of an unpacking of the direct application as to what that life of worship actually entails. What, what is a life of worship, a life in, lived in this unshakable kingdom that we belong to? What does it look like practically? Uh, and what, what, is it, what does it involve? And as citizens of Christ's unshakable kingdom, as believers in Jesus, we are to be loving, pure, content, loyal, bold, and worshipful. That's what we see in our text today. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and, and stand with me together for the, the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is, is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time to, to gather together, Lord, to, to sit under your word. And Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts to hear you, what you have for us today, to, to respond to it, to be changed by it. We pray by your grace that you would grip us in such a way that we live lives of worship before you in every way. That we live reflecting your glory back to you more and more each day. Father, have your way with us today. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. As citizens of Christ's unshakable kingdom, as believers in Christ, we are to be loving, pure, content, loyal, bold, and worshipful. And if you're counting at home, that's six, right? Six points for the six Super Bowls that Tom Brady will still only have after tonight, right? Six points. So that's double the, the normal sermon for you uh, if you're, you're counting at home, which means, hey, we should be out of here just in time for kickoff. That's why I came dressed ready for the game already. Um, but right, so six points, right? Six instructions. First instruction, be loving, be loving. It, it really shouldn't come as any surprise that love would be the first instruction that we are given. For if you think about it, in any church context, love is the key to healthy relationships and life together within the church. Love. The love of Christ, sharing that love with one another. And so that's where the instruction begins here in verses one through three. It says, let lo brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Well, we shouldn't just breeze past how, how revolutionary this actually is here right? With, with these words, the, the preacher of Hebrews, who's been contrasting all throughout this sermon, the old covenant with the new covenant, and, and the distinction between the old and new covenant, he, he's really signaling to us this major shift that has taken place from the, within the new covenant from the old, right? In the old covenant, there was always such a sharp distinction between the people of Israel and everyone else, Right? So many of the, the, the extra civil kind of regulations, the dietary restrictions, all these sort of things were meant to kind of keep Israel distinct and separated from uh, the rest of the world, the other nations. That distinction was even physically present in the temple itself. Right? To be able to enter into the, the, the court of Israel in the temple, you had to be Jewish. If you were not Jewish, if you were a Gentile, someone who's not Jewish, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to go in there. 
And even, to, even beyond that, right, the most holy place, only one Jewish man on one day of the year, the high priest of Israel on the day of atonement was allowed to enter into the most holy place, right? To not be a part of the, of the people of Israel would be sort of like if you go to the temple, you equate it with going to the, the, to the big game, right? And you get your ticket out and you approach the usher uh, to see, hey, where are my seats at? And you hand the ticket to the usher and the usher then instructs you, your seats, friend, are out here in the parking lot, right? That's where you get to go, right? You're not going to be able to engage with anything that's really happening if you're not a part of the people of Israel. If you weren't Jewish, you you couldn't really come into where you can engage with with much of anything at all. But, But we are to let Brotherly love continue. And that word brotherly stands out and it begs the question, who is my brother? Who is my brother? Who's my sister? That word brotherly is really revolutionary because it speaks to the relationship Christians are to have with one another. God the Father, through the Son, Jesus Christ, adopts us into his family as his sons and daughters. Right, where God is our Father, Jesus is our big brother, our perfect big brother, and we are welcomed into this family with lots of brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Brothers and sisters together in Christ. It's a huge family. You know, and our world will, will speak sometimes about the brotherhood of man, right? There's a city in the United States, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love which really lives that out so well that they booed Santa Claus at an at a Eagles game, as they would say, right? So, uh, like, we, we don't really understand. We talk about that in our world, but there's not a real understanding and a real grasp of brotherly love, the brotherhood of man, because the world rejects God as Father. And because it rejects God as Father, it really has no concept of brotherhood, of true brotherhood, But as believers in Christ, we are made a family, a family. And we are to love one another in the church, not just with some vague sentimentality like, hey, love your brother. No, but with practical concern and care for one another, looking out for one another, speaking into one another's lives, sharing one another's burdens, pooling our resources to meet one another's needs. Caring for one another practically, knowing and being known, serving and being served, caring for and being cared for. This brotherly love is to continue, the preacher says, which means that the assumption is, is that this sort of love is already present and there, but we must be diligent to maintain it, to, to grow it. Because we we are constantly bombarded with the temptations in our world to just turn inward on self, to become so self-absorbed that we neglect to love others. We can't get so numbed and distracted by by, by doing that, that that we, we do that, that we neglect one another. We have to push through. We have to press on, be diligent, be intentional in our love for one another within the church. But there's more here that that we're told. Our love doesn't stop just within the walls of the church. Like it's not just a love for the people of the church alone. But we are to love others outside the church too. And again, that love is not 
to be in just mere words, vague sentimentality, but it's to show itself in action. The practice of hospitality. Hospitality. Now, you need to understand something. We, we use hospitality pretty loosely in a lot of different ways uh, some of the times as Christians, right? But hospitality, biblically, is not about having your church friends over for dinner and a game night. That's not biblical hospitality. That's called fellowship, biblically, right? That's fellowship. You're gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ. But that is not hospitality, biblically, right? Biblically, hospitality is about opening your home to strangers, to those outside the faith. It's about giving space for outsiders to become insiders. That's hospitality. As you practically open your doors toward relationship and friendship with with outsiders, that they might become insiders. The preacher hints at the faithful generosity of, of Old Testament saints that you read about in Genesis and Judges, right? Who, in showing hospitality, actually entertained angels. And they were unaware of that at the moment, right? But they welcomed angels into their homes just because they were practicing hospitality and welcoming strangers and giving space for outsiders to become insiders. Not unlike the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, who talks about our care for strangers in need, Right? caring for those who are hungry, those who are lonely, those who are sick and in prison, right? And he says, practically caring for any of the least of these, you are actually caring for me, for Jesus. The call to be loving is a call to open your life and open your home to be an outpost for the gospel. To open your life and open your home to be an outpost for the gospel, rather than in our consumeristic mindset in our culture of seeing home as a retreat from the world, our homes, our places of refuge, are are meant to be an outpost of mission and a place of refuge for others in the world, not just ourselves. And even as we gather in our homes for community groups, remember when we used to do that? Uh, We will do that again. Right? Hopefully, hopefully soon, we will do that again. But those gatherings of, of our community groups in homes throughout our city, uh, they need to always be in those groups. We need to always be praying for who of our neighbors can we invite in? Who can we host? When can we have the next cookout? And who are we praying that will receive our invitations to come to that cookout where we might befriend and welcome them, where we might share the gospel, have gospel opportunities and conversations to share the hope of Christ with them, that they might hear and receive and respond, to be praying for that, practicing hospitality together. Even now, while we're waiting to be able to to gather freely in homes again, uh, let's be praying for those, those cookouts, those, those parties that we can host. Who can we be praying for that we would invite in? Praying for opportunities to share the love of Christ with those who need to know him. That's part of the, call, uh, of the love that we're called to live out. And in verse three, that shows us that, that we're also called to love in caring for those in need. Specifically, verse three mentions loving practically uh, and practically caring for those in prison. And in the context it's referring, in these first century Jewish Christians who are enduring persecution, it's talking about their brothers and sisters in Christ who are already in prison for their faith. They have been put in prison, locked up, because they belong to Christ. And it's saying, 
hey, that's part of the family. We need to go and we need to care and we need to love and serve and, and care for them. And, and, and in the context of first century world, to be in prison meant if you don't have people coming to you to bring you food, to bring you water, to bring you clothing, then you just go without. There, there's no government provided, you know, prison meals coming around for you. It's on the people in your network of relationship to come and, and care for you. And while we don't necessarily see a lot of people in our immediate context who are put into prison for their faith in, in Christ, we should still care for people who are in prison. There are still tremendous gospel opportunities in prisons to share the love of Christ with people who need to hear that message, to receive it, to believe, to trust, to encourage the believers who are there, who have embraced Christ already but are still doing their time, to love and encourage and, and be a part of that. There, there are opportunities for us in the church to, to, to serve in that way. But we can also think of, of ways where we can care for other people in need who are maybe not in literal prison, but in many ways their existence can feel like a prison of sorts. Think about the elderly who are in nursing homes, especially in a time like this where it's so hard to go and visit. The loneliness that they feel. Folks because of their health or age who are, are largely shut into their homes and are not free to just get out and go out and see other people. We have a call as a church to go to them, to care, to take love and care practically to visit and love those folks. There are those who wrestle with anxiety and depression, who feel imprisoned at times by their struggle. And again, we can offer a practical loving presence and a listening ear and genuine care. While there aren't many believers in the United States who are imprisoned for their faith in Christ, there are many Christians throughout the world who are. Many Christians who ha have been wrongfully imprisoned just because they claim Christ, who have been killed and martyred for their faith in Jesus. And while not all of us have the ability to go to those places, especially in this season, to go and to visit, we can faithfully pray for and advocate for those fellow believers, those fellow family members of ours in places around the world suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Our love should care practically for others in need. It should show brotherly love for one another in the church, and we should practice hospitality. It's the first instruction, the foundational instruction, and the other sort of build off of that. The second, be pure. Be pure. Look at verse 4. Let, the marriage, uh, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be, kept, uh, be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Every Christian, every believer in Christ, married or single, is to have a high view of marriage, a holy view of marriage, God's view of marriage. And we live in a time where in our culture, sadly, even in the church, divorce rates are pretty much mirror the divorce rates of our culture, both within the church and outside the church. They're very similar, about the same. Um, and we live in a culture that in so many ways just disdains marriage increasingly. It encourages people, why bother? It's just a piece of paper, just move in, hook up, live together. That, that labels things that God does not call marriage, but calls sin as marriage. Right? 
We live in a culture that considers about any sort of sexual restraint as ridiculous, foolishness. Why would you deny yourself? Pursue your urges, right? Pursue how God has made you. The language goes. But the Bible is clear from beginning to end that marriage is not an institution created by the state, by any government, but it's an institution created by God himself. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God creating marriage, bringing, literally sort of walking down the aisle, the first woman bringing her to the first man in, in, in the covenant of marriage. And he defines marriage as a covenant relationship in his scriptures at, between one man and one woman for life. God is often painted as a prude when it comes to sex, right? That like God created us male and female with the parts that he gives us and, you know, sort of turned his back on the first man and woman and then all of a sudden turned back around. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that? that that's, not how that, that's not how God is, right? He created sex. He created our bodies as they are to feel the pleasure that they feel. Right? He created us. God is not a prude. As you read through the scriptures, God is not a prude about sex. He's created it as a good gift in the right context, in the context that he created it for, which is that of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And God grants real freedom, true and real freedom to the marriage bed. Right? He's not a prude. You see, the world sees sexual freedom like freedom. Like marriage is slavery, imprisonment, right? Bondage. To, I, I'm, I'm chained to one person for the rest of my life. But freedom in our culture is I can go home and sleep with whoever I want to tonight. That's what our culture says. But it's a lie. It's a lie. The freedom of our culture is actually a slavery. A fish out of water is not free from the water. It's not free. It is enslaved to suffering and eventual death because it's not constrained to the water where it was meant to flourish. It's the same way with us and, and sexuality and relationship. Within the context in the covenant of marriage, we are made to flourish and enjoy real freedom. But outside that covenant, outside that context is suffering and real slavery. It's a slavery to performance where nonstop, did, did I do it right? Did, did I please them? Did they, will they approve of me tomorrow? Will they come back tomorrow? Will they leave? That is a slavery, friends. But the covenant of marriage gives a real freedom like the water for the fish to flourish Freedom. In the context of marriage where, where sex is an expression of covenant love, there's a freedom for, for spontaneity or scheduled intimacy. And, and, and young married folks without children, as you have children and as they get older, you'll understand that sometimes it's real romantic to schedule things. Uh, it's a freedom to passion and silliness. In marriage, there's a covenant that gives true freedom. But a good marriage takes work. It takes work. And it needs the support of the church community. A married couple needs to work at their marriage and work at their intimacy and not simply expect it to happen and be frustrated when it doesn't just happen. 
Again, our natural bent is to constantly be turned inward on ourselves, self-absorbed, self-focused to where we neglect to love our spouse the way we're called to love our spouse. And so married couples from other married couples and from singles in the church need encouragement, need support, right? To encourage them in their covenant, to help them fight, to honor their covenant, to protect their covenant, to pray for that covenant. And collectively, we need to celebrate marriage as God created it and seek its honoring and protection. To support anything outside the bounds of biblical marriage is an affront to God and his good gift. You are to be pure, to be pure. The third instruction, be content. Right, the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments, uh, you know, which, which says, thou shall not covet, is possibly the most difficult of the commandments to really comprehend because we live in a culture that's absolutely built on coveting, longing for what we don't have. Our economy, right, pretty much every commercial is encouraging our coveting. You need this that you don't have. You should want this. You should get what you want, and, and, and you're encouraged to, to want what you don't have. Whether it's the latest smartphone, whether it's scanning through Zillow, we're constantly encouraged in our culture to covet, to covet, which makes it really difficult to live free from want and free from the love of money that we think will get us all the things that we want. But that's exactly what we're warned against in verses five and six. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We, we should make the distinction that, that money isn't described as the problem, but rather the love of money is the real problem, the real issue. And really the positive side of this warning is to pursue contentment. Pursue contentment. To be content with what you have been given. To enjoy it. These words of scripture are not a communist manifesto or any sort of economic philosophy. That's not what's being advocated for here, but rather it's a spiritual principle to live by. The Bible teaches the importance of, of working hard, of saving, uh, of investing wisely. Th those are biblical principles that are taught throughout the scriptures. It teaches the importance of wisdom and managing the resources that God entrusts to you. But the spiritual principle is that we are to be content with what we have, whether it be much or little. We are to be content. And the reason we are to be content is laid out for us here. We are to be content because the source of our contentment is not in what we possess or acquire for ourselves but rather contentment comes from serving a God who, who takes care of us. A God who's faithful to provide for us. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, right? Not even Solomon is clothed in the splendor that they are, right? Consider the birds of the air, how he provides and cares. How much more valuable are you than they to God? God promises to never leave or forsake us. A God who promises to sustain us in any situation of abundance or need. And verse six makes clear that this contentment is about more than just material provision. Because it also speaks 
to the pressures that come from wanting others' approval, fear of man. Oh, how we long to be approved of by the people around us, whether in the church or outside the church. We want to be liked. We want to be received and and approved of, told, good job, or you're right. We want to hear that. And so there's a real temptation to be driven by a fear of losing that approval. Which, by the way, the approval of other people is like this, right? Constantly, up and down, up and down. One day it's great, the next day it's bottomed out. It's impossible to hold on to and to keep. But so many of us are are driven by that fear of man, that longing for approval. And at the end of the day, we must trust that pleasure, possessions, and popularity are all under the sovereign control of our holy and generous God. And at his right hand, he tells us, are pleasures forevermore. Do you trust him? Or do you just think he's the mean guy keeping you from all the joy and pleasure that you want? At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's able to supply our need anytime. And he tells us that it's his approval alone that in the end really matters. And it's his approval that if you are in Christ, you cannot lose. You have it. You cannot be separated from it. He delights over you. The truth is, everything that can be taken away from us will be taken away from us. Right? We've all been to a funeral. I imagine we've all been to a funeral before, right? You don't get to take anything with you. In the end, it's all going to go to someone else. Why are we living for this stuff that's here today, gone tomorrow? Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. Read Ecclesiastes. We should be people who enjoy, who eat, drink, and enjoy the the work and the, the people that God has given us while we have them. But to know we hold them loosely because in the end, Everything that can be taken away from us will be taken away from us. But Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you always. He's the one who approves of you in him and you cannot ever lose it. We have everything we truly need in him. And so we can and we should be content because we live for and serve a God who is with us and for us. The fourth instruction, be loyal. First, he encourages us to be loyal to our leaders. Verse seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And and in the context of the sermon, uh, it's really a reference to the leaders who have likely already died because of their faith, maybe been martyred even because of their faith, that they've passed on. It's former leaders in the past. Remember them and, and consider their way of life and the outcome of their life. Uh, to, to, to think on that. Those leaders who faithfully proclaim the word of God to them. 
but to not only remember their preaching, but even more their faithful lives, the example of their faithful lives that were lived out before them. Dallas Willard has this great quote kind of addressed to to pastors and and church leaders where he talks about, there's a reality, uh, and, and it's a good word for people like me, that most people won't remember anything you said in a sermon later down the road, right? Most of you won't remember hardly a word of this later tonight, uh, right? You'll forget it. But people will absolutely remember the kind of person that you were as you were caring for them, as you were ministering to them, as you were teaching them, as you were walking through life with them. They will absolutely remember that. And that's sort of the, the mindset of this verse. Consider the kind of people that these leaders were in your life. Their way of life and the outcome of that life, the fruit of that life, and and seek to follow that, to imitate that, that you might see similar fruit in your own life of following Jesus and caring for others and, and serving his kingdom. But even more, there's a call here to be loyal to Jesus himself. Our earthly leaders come and go, right? I hope that Redeemer's here a lot longer than I am in this world. Um, But while earthly leaders come and go, Jesus is always with us. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes and he's always there. In the great yesterday of human history, Jesus died in our place to pay for our debt of sin Today, he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. He prays on our behalf. He cheers us on from the throne room of heaven. And we can be certain that he's coming again to usher in the fullness of his unshakable kingdom where we will be with him forever. And he will be the same yesterday, today, forever. Verse eight may be the most famous verse in this book. But it's important that we remember the context here. It's it's set between the commendation of faithful leaders and then the the condemnation of false teachers, right? Faithful leaders come and go. False teachers come and go. But Jesus, rock solid, always there. Yesterday, today, forever, he's always the same. That's where we need to lean on the most, Jesus. The warning of Verse nine is about false teachers. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited or devoted, uh, those devoted to them. The reference to foods, right, implies that this false teaching probably had something to do with observing certain dietary restrictions, probably likely continuing to try to tie in Old Testament Jewish law uh, of dietary restrictions to the new covenant and kind of mix it together and, and observe all that. Uh, that's some speculation, but it has something to do with food. But, but regardless, the point is that it is grace that strengthens the believer. Not ascribing to a certain set of rules or avo- avoiding certain food or drink, but it's grace, the grace of Jesus that strengthens the believer. The believer is to be loyal to Jesus and his word. But the real danger for us in a time where so many people are biblically illiterate and just starved of God's word because we don't consume it, we don't read it for ourselves. The danger is that we can easily be swept away by teachings that cater to our itching ears. And we don't have the background and the understanding to say, oh, that doesn't actually line up with what God's word says. That's wrong. 
We must be careful that, that we're not deceived by some false gospel that, that promotes uh, we justify ourselves by what we think or what we say or what we do or how we vote, no matter what way you vote. But we must remember that it is Christ alone that justifies and declares us righteous before God's throne. Verses 10 through 12, right? We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What does this mean? Right? We, we would never really give much thought to this, but the bodies of the animals of the Old Testament sacrifices, the, the bodies were taken outside of the city after the, the, the shedding of the blood and they were burned because it would have defiled the city to have burned their bodies within the walls of the city. But just like these sacrifices, Jesus himself also suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. He carried his cross to Golgotha, outside the gates. But his suffering outside the gates is superior because of what it accomplishes. Jesus suffered outside the gates that he might sanctify, sanctify his people by his own blood. It's his blood that makes us holy. Not our behavior, not what we do or don't do, but what Jesus did. That's what makes us righteous before God, right? Just as, as Jordan was sharing with us earlier in the liturgy, right? We don't measure up, but he's measured up for us. He's the one who is our perfect righteousness. We are strengthened by grace through faith in him. And so we are to remain loyal to Jesus and to his word. Fifth instruction, be bold. I told you, right before kickoff, we'll be done. Uh, Be bold, right? The preacher continues, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Understanding that our Lord and Savior suffered outside the gates, rejected by his own people, right? If he suffered like that, if he suffered rejection, what are we to expect for ourselves? Are we to try to avoid that at all costs? No, the preacher says, believers, you're to go outside the gate too. You must follow Jesus and suffer the rejection that he suffered and be identified with him in his suffering. And that's a call for you and me as well. We must go out to Jesus, not for Jesus, to Jesus. But we must go out to him for that is where Jesus is. Jesus isn't hunkered down hiding out inside the walls of the church building. He's out there in the hostile, Christ-rejecting world. That's where he is. And and what this highlights is that maybe even the stronger temptation for these believers wasn't so much to fully reject the gospel completely, like to just go full apostate and abandon it, as much as it was to simply become an insular group, just a holy huddle, just us Jewish Christians hanging out together hiding out from the rest of the world, keeping the gospel to ourselves. Similarly for us, maybe just as strong as the temptation is from the world to cave in and give up the faith, join in with the culture, is the temptation to hide out 
as an isolationist group of Christians to just simply avoid the world altogether. Just avoid it. And in so doing, completely reject and abandon the missional mandate that Jesus himself has commanded us. There's a reality that many Christians don't completely abandon their faith, but rather they hide it to avoid the pushback. The world might throw their way. Jesus said, Luke 9, 26, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Take all this together. This isn't just a warning. It's also a reminder that can encourage us to persevere. For in this world, we have no lasting city. In this world, we have no lasting city, no lasting kingdom. The kingdoms of this world, they come and go. Study your history. They don't last forever. They come and go. You know, our, our kingdom that we live in will come and go. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it will. They come and go. There is no lasting city in this world. Whatever approval we might find in the world will not last, but in Christ we belong to a city that is to come, the unshakable, eternable kingdom, right, Jesse? Uh, to go out to Jesus and to suffer with him is to, to know, and I, I, love, I actually love that, so that's not me being mean. I, I think that was amazing. But yeah, uh, but in Christ, we, we belong to that city that is to come, the unshakable kingdom. And to go out to Jesus and to suffer with him is to know that when he comes again, he will not be ashamed of us, but he will welcome us to him with open arms. We will hear him say to us on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's the approval that matters. That's the approval that lasts the approval that enables us to risk, to risk it all in this world, that we might be bold and go out to Jesus in the world, sharing his message of hope with those who need to hear it. We've been saved not to, to some safe, holy bubble, but we've been commissioned to join Jesus in boldly taking his message to the ends of the earth. Lastly, sixth instruction, be worshipful. Be worshipful. That's a summation of what we see in these last two verses, 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Although Jesus is our one perfect, complete and unrepeatable sacrifice, the preacher tells us there are still other sacrifices that we are to offer up. We still have some sacrifices to, to make, to, to give to God daily. They're, they're not sacrifices to attempt to pay for or cover our sins, but sacrifice offered up in response to the fact that our sins have been covered and they have been paid for. Four sacrifices mentioned here. The sacrifice of thankful praise to God because Jesus has lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve. He's been raised victorious over sin and death. Our lives should be a constant echo of just worship, and thankfulness, praise to God for his glorious provision and his grace toward us. No matter how dark the day may be, there should be no day that passes in our lives where we don't give thanks to God. In any day, even the hardest days, there is something, namely Jesus, 
to give thanks to God for. We can give thanks. So what are you thankful for? Do you ask yourself that regularly? Do you ask your, your family members, your, your friends, what are you thankful for? And, and speak it, right? Speak it. What can you praise God for today? There's never a day we can't give thanks. The second sacrifice is that of unashamed witness, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is with our mouths, with our voices. Somebody you know, attributes this quote, right, uh, to Francis of Assisi, right? Speak the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Dumb quote. And St. Francis, I guarantee, never said that. He's too smart for that. We need to use our words to give a verbal witness to the goodness of Christ, not just our lives, our words too. The fruit of lips, with our mouths, with our voices, give witness to other of the, uh, uh, of the finished work of Christ that has rescued us to share the gospel with our mouths, with our words. We are to share the gospel, to worship Jesus by telling others what he's done for us personally. It's through that testimony that others are invited in, outsiders to become insiders, to know Christ for themselves too. Thirdly, there's a sacrifice of faithful and compassionate service, not neglecting to do good to others. Jesus has served and met our deepest need. We are to use the gifts and the skills that he blesses us with to meet others' needs, practically as he did, caring for physical, practical needs as he did in his ministry. These good deeds are not done to earn God's approval, but because we already have it and because we delight to share his love with others. Lastly, there's the sacrifice of generous giving to share what you have, to share what you have. The sacrifice of Jesus frees us to open our hands again, to hold loosely all the things that he's entrusted to us while we have them and to give generously of our time, our talent, and our treasure to open our lives to other people, to utilize our gifts and talents to serve his kingdom and to open our homes as outposts for the gospel and to give of our money freely, generously, sacrificially, cheerfully to support the work of the gospel and the advancement of of Christ's kingdom, both locally and globally. These sacrifices of worship are in response to the sacrifice of Christ. Because of his generosity and grace, We worship him with our lives every day. As citizens of Christ's unshakable kingdom, we are to be loving, pure, content, loyal, bold, and worshipful. Let's pray. No, let's not pray, right? We shouldn't pray right there. You cannot be those things. You and I, we fail to be all those things. This is not a call on your own strength, by your own effort. Be loving, be pure, be be content, be be loyal. No, but it's it's a call to look at the one who's been all of those things in your place and to let his grace motivate and empower you to increasingly be loving, to be pure, to be content, to be loyal, to be bold, to be worshipful because he has been those things perfectly for you and he covers you in his perfection. It's as we consider the selfless love of Christ that he would live for us and die for us and rise for us, that he would exchange his perfect righteousness for our sin 
that he loved us that much to suffer the judgment we deserve. It's in considering that love that empowers us to love one another in the church with grace and compassion and kindness, even when we sin against one another brutally. To love the world that often hates us and rejects us because of Christ, but to love them nonetheless and to invite them in, not because of of our ability to do that, but because Jesus did that for us. It's his love that empowers our love. It's as we consider the faithful covenant love of Christ to his bride, the church, his bride, us, who betray him all the time, who cheat on him all the time, chase after other lovers all the time. Yet when does Jesus divorce his bride? When does he walk out on her? Never, never. He faithfully pursues with grace upon grace upon grace. It's in looking at his faithful covenant love that we are empowered to be pure, to to be faithful to our covenants in marriage, to to hold marriage in high regard. It's as we consider all that Jesus gave up, the riches of heaven itself to come and have no home, that he might rescue us and make us his own, that's what enables us to be content, to know that in Christ we have everything we could ever need. It's the loyalty of Christ to a disloyal people that moves us to be loyal and faithful to him. It's the boldness of Christ to bear the shame of the cross that empowers us to become bold witnesses for him and his love and grace. It's thinking on Jesus, who he is, all that he's done that makes it possible for us to worship. Friends, don't hear this list of things and say, I need to get busy doing it. But look at Jesus and let his grace for you empower you to be these things more and more as you're shaped in his image and likeness for his glory and your joy. May we live lives of worship in response to his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in your son, Jesus. Help us to see your love and faithfulness and grace in ways that grip our hearts and transform our lives to live for you in every way. Help us to reflect your selfless love in the way that we love one another and the way we love our city. Help us to respond to your faithfulness with purity. Help us to be content knowing that we have all we need in you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be loyally devoted to you in every way, to be bold in sharing your love and truth with others. And by your spirit, help us to live lives of worship, giving thanks, sharing our gifts, our resources, and our very lives to advance your kingdom and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.